Guess who made that video? Ben, of course, of course. So that video represents kind of what this series is all about. The last few weeks we've been taking little sections out of the Bible. We've been pulling out a scene or a story or a verse or a letter or a sermon or something from the Bible and examining it to see what we can learn about it and what we can learn from it because there's great stuff, even in the Old Testament stories that really apply to our lives now, great instruction for us about who we are and why we're here and how we should live. But we've been taking these things out and we've been examining each story on its own merit, and then maybe the more important thing is we've been putting it back into the Bible and seeing exactly where it fits in this great, big, amazing story that leads to Jesus. And so today we're gonna take this little story out of the Bible and do the same thing, and we're gonna take a look at the Passover. Um, I really wanted to talk about Passover today, but we got a lot of ground to cover to get there. Um, because last week we talked about Abraham and the covenant that God made with his family, that he was gonna bless him with his amazing family, he was gonna bless that family, and he was gonna bless the world through that family. And it was gonna start with this covenant that he was gonna give him this great big family. So we've been going pretty slow uh, for the last few weeks. We spent five weeks on the first two pages of Genesis, so that was cool. Um, I promise you we were gonna pick up the pace, and so, Today we are gonna to pick up the pace. Um, we are gonna go through Abraham's family from Abraham to Moses, um, from God's promise to Abraham all the way to the Passover. We are gonna go all the way from Genesis 21 to Exodus 12, and we're gonna do it in record-breaking time. And you know how we're gonna do it? We're gonna skip a whole lot of stuff. That's what we're gonna do. As we go, we're gonna see a couple of life lessons along the way, and then ultimately we're gonna see how this story of the Passover fits into this big unified story that leads us to Jesus. But first, we have to cover about 600 years of history in about 18 minutes. So if you've got your Bibles, we're gonna start in Genesis chapter 21. We're gonna be skipping around a whole lot. Good luck keeping up. And just so that we know what the world record is, we're gonna start a timer. Matt, could you put our time up there? Okay, here we go. So this is starting in Genesis 21. It all starts with Abraham and this promise that God made him about this great big amazing family that he was gonna have. And God fulfilled that promise, first of all, with Abraham's son, Isaac. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac then has a son named Jacob, who will later have his name changed to Israel. So you kind of see how that's gonna work, right? The family of Abraham is gonna become Israel. So it goes Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, or Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's favorite son is Joseph. He's gonna play a super pivotal role in the whole Bible. So now we're gonna fast forward to chapter 37. Uh, verse two says, this is the account of Jacob and his family. So we, Abraham, Isaac, now we're talking about Jacob and his family. And if you think you have a weird family, this is Jacob's family. He's married to a woman named Leah, who is also his cousin. And if that's not weird enough for you, he's also married to her sister, who is also his cousin. And he has children with both of them, and he also has children with two maids that belong to them. Uh, and he also has a daughter, and he also has these 12 sons. And of these 12 sons, he likes Joseph better than the rest. He's almost the youngest. He came from his favorite wife. He had him in his old age. He just likes him. It's almost like a grandpa deal, I guess. He likes him better than the other kids, and it shows. And Joseph knows it, and so Joseph is like 
really full of himself apparently and snotty. He's always like snitching on his brothers and sisters when they do wrong. He goes and tells dad everything that they do. That's actually what it says. He reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. And yeah, Jacob liked him better. And so he gave him, you know what, the coat of many colors, right? He gave him the famous jacket or robe or whatever just to show how much he liked him better than everybody else. Uh, And so, you know, there's gonna be life lessons along the way. What's gonna happen now is the brothers are gonna turn against Joseph and do horrible, horrible, horrible things to them. So first life application today, the lesson for us to all learn is snitches get stitches. So just so you know, um, that's lesson number one. Lesson two, on the same line, if you want your, okay, if you want your kids to hate each other, if you want your kids to be horrible to each other, one of the best ways you can bring that about is by showing favoritism, and that's a real life lesson right there. Uh, so, yeah, he has the, Joseph has these dreams. It's not his fault he has the dreams, but he has this dream that him and his brothers all have a bundle of grain, and all of their bundles bow down to his bundle. Not bad that he had the dream. The stupid thing he did was he told his brothers about the dream, so now they really hate him, right? Then he has another dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down and worship him, and in case telling his brothers wasn't stupid enough, now he tells his dad about the dream, and his dad's like, you, you you saying your mother and me and your brothers are all gonna bow down and worship you? So they hate him. Everybody, everybody hates him except for his dad. And so his brothers, the Bible says, were jealous of Joseph, but his father was wondering what those dreams might really mean. And what they really meant in his family was that his brothers hated him. And so in fact, they decided that they were gonna kill him. But then at some point they decided instead of killing him and having to cover up the crime and all that good stuff, because they loved him and they were family and all that stuff, they were gonna sell him as a slave. And the words that it actually uses, after all, he is our brother. So that was kindness in that family. Okay, so they sell them to these people that are, they live in Canaan, right? And so these people are going through, they're selling stuff and buying stuff. It's just traveling band of merchants or whatever. And so they sell him as a slave to this group. And then that group ends up going all the way to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, a guy named Potiphar buys Joseph as a slave. And Potiphar's Uh, He's like in the government, he's like the secretary of defense or something. He's like a big shot in the military or whatever. He buys Joseph as a slave, puts him to work in his house. Joseph does great. Everything he touches turns to gold. God is with him, obviously. Good stuff is happening. So he gets promoted as a slave. He gets promoted up to like he's the head slave or whatever. He's running Potiphar's house and he's in charge of everything. Potiphar trusts him completely with everything except his wife. Um, One problem, the wife sees Joseph. The Bible says that he was handsome and well-built. And so Potiphar's wife starts looking at him lustfully and she tries to seduce him. He's, you know, no, no, he's pushing her away and all that good stuff. One day she just comes at him and like grabs his jacket and says, you know, we're doing this thing or whatever. And Joseph like pulls away from her and she's hold, he's like spinning out and now she's like holding his jacket and he runs out. So, you know, the old expression is hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? So she is furious. So she's got his jacket. So she tells her husband, Potiphar, this military big shot, that that Joseph tried to rape her. So he didn't, he didn't do anything wrong, but who are they gonna believe, right? And so Joseph goes to prison. But then while he's in prison, framed for rape, while he's in prison, God even blesses him there. And now he works his way up, and now he was the head slave, now he's the head prisoner, right? And the warden trusts him, and he gives him all these great responsibilities and everything. Joseph's doing great in prison, as good as you can do. And then one day, a couple of employees of Pharaoh get kind of sideways with Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh throws them in prison, and the people that he threw in prison were his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. So the chief 
chief cupbearer, you know what that is? It's like uh, the wine taster. And so he would taste the king's wine just to make sure that it wasn't poison or whatever. And then if it was cool, then he would give it to the king. And then a lot of times the wine, wine taster kind of became like a trusted advisor or something to Pharaoh. And then the chief baker, you know what the chief baker did? It's not, it's not a trick question. <laughs> he, he baked. Okay, so they got, Pharaoh gets mad at them. He throws them both in jail. So one day these guys both on the same night have these really weird dreams and they're really upset. They don't know what's going on. The dream must have meant something. And so Joseph has a lot of experience with dreams, right? And so he sees them one day and he goes, hey, you guys seem down. What's going on? And they said, oh, we've had these really weird dreams. We don't know what they mean. And Joseph said, oh, let me pray. Maybe God will tell me what your dreams mean and then I can tell you. So yeah, let's do that. So he talks to, first of all, the cupbearer and he goes, well, tell me about your dream. And it starts with these three branches of a vine or whatever. So Joseph listens to the whole thing and then he goes, okay, well, here's what it means. Uh, the, the three branches represent three days. He says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. And when he does, please remember me and tell him, I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. I was kidnapped. I was, I was, I've sold as a slave. I didn't do anything wrong. Now I'm in prison. I didn't do anything. So, I mean, I'm helping you get out here. You, when you get out, you need to tell Pharaoh about me and maybe he'll get me out of here. And so then the chief baker, it says, heard such a positive interpretation that he said to Joseph, hey, I had a dream too. And in my dream, there were three baskets of pastries stacked on my head and blah, he tells him all about that dream. So what do you think? What, is, what does it mean? I mean, is this the same as a cupbearer? Am I gonna get out of here? Am I gonna get my old job back? And Joseph goes like, well, <laughs> no, um, the three baskets also represent three days and three days from now, yeah, Pharaoh's gonna lift you up and he's gonna impale your body on a pole and then birds will come and peck away at your flesh. So not as good. As, as the other one. So anyway, man, it happens, right? They, they both get out and he gets impaled and birds eat him or whatever. And then the cupbearer gets his job back and he's working in Pharaoh's court and everything's cool with him again. And guess what? He forgets all about Joseph. And he promised Joseph that he was gonna tell Pharaoh and he was gonna try to get him out of there, but he just, he just forgot. And so now he's just living his life and everything is normal and Joseph stuck back in prison for two years. After a couple of years, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has these really weird dreams. And he dreams that there are um, like grain, like stalks of grain and there are seven big healthy ones and seven scrawny unhealthy ones and the unhealthy ones eat the, the, the healthy ones. And then he has almost the same dream, but with cows. So there were seven big, fat, healthy cows and seven scrawny, sickly cows and the seven scrawny, sickly cows eat the great big cows. And so he's freaking out. What does it mean? What does it mean? I don't know what it's, so he's calling in all of his advisors and astrologers and everybody else he can find. And somebody's gonna have to tell me what this dream means. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do. So he's yelling at his court or whatever. What are we gonna do, people? I've had this crazy dream. Well, his cupbearer's standing there. And so the cupbearer says, oh, yeah, that's right, now I remember. I was supposed to tell you about this dude that I met while I was in prison, maybe he can interpret your dreams. And so they send for Joseph, they get him all cleaned up and shaved up and they bring him in for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, hey, I've had these really weird dreams, do you think you can tell me what they mean? Joseph says, yeah, let me give it a try. He says, I can't do it, but God can do it. And maybe he'll tell me and then I can tell you. And so the king tells him what his dreams were. And Joseph said, yeah, well, here's what it means, the seven grains and the seven cows represent seven years. And so what we're gonna have is seven big, fat, healthy years in Egypt. Bumper crops, money's gonna be pouring in, economy's gonna be high, approval ratings are great, everything's gonna be wonderful in Egypt for seven years. And then we're gonna have seven awful years 
and it's going to be famine and the economy's going to tank and everybody's going to hate everybody and the whole world's just going to go down the drain. So you know what you should do? During that good seven years, you should stockpile stuff, man. You should save up all the grain and build everything up, get a bunch of money put away, really be conservative, save all your money and all that good stuff because then when the whole world's falling apart, Egypt will still have food and we'll still be okay. And that's exactly what was going to happen. And so the king says, well, you know, that sounds right. And all of his advisors agree that that sounds right. And so they said, well, who's going to manage all that? You know, we need somebody to be the secretary of whatever that's called. And so, you know what, Joseph, it's going to be you. You're going to be the vice pharaoh, right? You're going to be the second in command. You're going to be in charge of everything in Egypt. And so he gives Joseph a new name, an Egyptian name. He gives him a house. He gives him a wife. He gives him this great job. Joseph's 30 years old at this point. He's the second most important man in the world, I guess. And then sure enough, everything he said was going to happen, happened. They had seven amazing years, bumper crops, great economy. Everything's going great. And they are stockpiling stuff. And he's keeping all these records. He's building barns to store stuff in. After a time, he couldn't keep up. He couldn't tr keep track anymore because his computers were down or something like that. So they, they couldn't keep up with everything. So he just quit even trying. They had so much stuff, they couldn't even count it and after seven years. And then just like we knew was going to happen, the famine comes, right? Nothing will grow, the economy's terrible, everybody's starving, and Egypt's fine because they've been saving up their stuff, but all the countries around them are doing terrible and they don't have food. So all the countries around them are sending like these envoys over to talk to, to Joseph, and hey man, we need some food. And so they're helping the countries around them the best that they can, and those countries include Canaan, where Jacob still was with Joseph's brothers. And so Jacob one day looks at his brothers, or his sons, and he says, this, see if this sounds like your dad. Why are you all standing around looking at each other? <laughs> it's my dad. Uh, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt, so go down there and buy enough grain to keep us going or else we're all gonna die. So guess who they had to talk to? Joseph, right? And so the brothers go up there. They don't even recognize him. They go to Joseph and they bow down before him. Just like the dream, right? <laughs> and so they don't even know who he is, but Joseph knows who they are. So first he's kind of like going, yeah, <laughs> member. <Right? laughs> but he didn't. He, he messed with them. He messed with them. But eventually he says, yeah, you know, we're going to give you the grain and all that good stuff. So go back and, you know, get your dad and bring him over here. And then when they come back, Joseph reveals his identity. No, it's me. It's your brother, Joseph. And so they're, they're thinking he's going to kill him or something, right? No, no, I'm not mad at you. He said, you know, God sent me here to prepare this so that we could, I could save you. So I'm, I'm glad that it all happened. Famous line from Joseph. He says, what you intended for evil, God has turned for good. And so then uh, they bring the dad over there. Pretty soon Pharaoh hears about the whole story. He loves Joseph, obviously. And so he tells Jacob, Joseph's dad, and all of his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? He says, you know what, come over here. We're gonna take care of you. We're gonna give you the best land. You're gonna have the best food and build you a cool house. Everything's gonna be great and they're, you're gonna love it here in Egypt. So that's what they do, man. They bring Jacob, they bring all of their families, all of their livestock, all of their stuff, and they all come to Egypt and the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel all come to live in Egypt and they all lived happily ever after for a while. Let's take a pause now. This doesn't count on my time, but we'll leave, we'll leave it running. Um, 
Joseph, remember we've been talking about in the Old Testament these shadows, right? These images, a type of Christ, right? Joseph is a classic type of Christ. Remember we said it's like when you go to Costco and they give you a sample, it's just a little taste of something way better that's coming later. It's a little tease of something that looks like what's coming but it's not what's coming but it's making us want what's coming. He's a type of Christ. So just look, see if you see any um, commonalities between Joseph and Jesus. So Joseph's father loved him in a really special way. Joseph was hated by his own brothers. Joseph was betrayed by the people that he should have been able to trust. And those people plotted to kill him and put him in the ground. Eventually, he was raised up to glory, and when he was, he saved the people who had betrayed him. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you see how he's a type of Christ? He's a shadow of Christ. He's an image of Christ. And so when we're reading the story, we're supposed to say, is he the one? Is, so is he the Messiah? Is he the head crusher? Right? Is he the snake crusher? Is he the one? But you know, he's probably too full of himself. Right? Too much pride. So it, it can't be him, but he's a type of Christ. If you understand types of Christ and shadows and images and foreshadowing, go like this. All right, let's keep going. Exodus. Um, so Exodus uh, chapter one, verse six. After a while, Joseph died, and all of his brothers died, and so that whole generation was gone, and after a while, it says, a new king came to power in Egypt, and he didn't remember Joseph, and he didn't love Joseph, and he wasn't crazy about his family, and he starts looking around, and the Israelites are just multiplying like crazy. So God promised Abraham that his family was gonna go like nuts, right? Like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. So he's having all these kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and so Pharaoh's looking around, and he goes, you know what, they're outnumbering us. What are we gonna do? We gotta do something, and so they made the Israelites their slaves and they started just treating them horribly. It says they made their lives bitter. They were just cruel and really, really mean to them, but it didn't matter. The Israelites just kept growing. God promised, man, it's gonna happen. And so their family's just growing and growing. So Pharaoh's going, what are we gonna do? Someday our enemies are gonna come over here and they're gonna hook up with them, and then what? So we gotta do something drastic. And so he passes a law. He talks to the midwives that are delivering the Hebrew babies, and he goes, here's what you do. If a Hebrew woman has a baby, if it's a girl, no problem. If it's a boy, throw them in the Nile River throw them in the Nile River, and that way we're gonna stop this thing from getting out of control, and we're, gonna, we're outnumbered here. And so the midwives wouldn't do it. And so he said, well, what's happening? They're still having babies, and things are still happening, and the midwives said, oh, I don't know, those Hebrew women, man, they pump out the babies. By the time we get there, it's all over, you know, there's nothing we can really do about it. And so uh, here's another great, here's a really, like, modern, here's a real-life lesson. A prof, uh, th these are pro-life people standing up against a pro-choice government. Interesting, huh? So anyway, Pharaoh's, he's not done with that, so he just passes the law for everybody. If you see a Hebrew baby boy, you have to throw him in the river. So about that time, Moses is born. Moses is going to be huge in this story, right? And so Moses is born. His mom doesn't want him to get thrown in the river. So she puts him in a basket, and she floats him out in the, in the river, in the reeds or whatever, and he has, she has his sister watching over him. So she's floating him out in the, in the water or whatever. Well, here comes Pharaoh's daughter, the princess or whatever. She comes walking down to the water. She's going to take a bath. She looks over, she sees Moses, and she says, you know, that's pretty cute. I could have a baby, um, and I don't have to lose my figure or whatever, so I'm going to adopt this kid. And so there's Moses' sister, and he, she says, hey, you know, do, do you want to adopt this baby? Um, if you want, I could hire one of the Hebrew women to be like the nanny and nurse him and everything for a couple of years. You want me to do that? So Pharaoh's daughter, yeah, let's do that. So Moses' mom gets hired 
<laughs> That's cool, right? Moms, she got paid, right? So it was really cool. So anyway, so now she raises him up, and then after a time, he goes to live with Pharaoh's daughter in the palace or whatever. And so um, after a time, he's growing up in the palace. He knows who he is. His name is Moses. It means I took you out of the water. And so he knows who he is, and he knows who his mom is, and he knows, he, I think he knows that he's, Hebrew or whatever, because a couple of years later, this is in verse 11 of chapter two, um, Moses grows up and he goes out in the world to see what's going on and he sees how badly the Egyptians are treating the Israelites and they're beating them and they're horrible to them and he sees one of them beating one of his family, right? And so when nobody's looking, he takes that Egyptian and kills him and he buries him in the sand. And so he's thinking, okay, you know, done deal or whatever. The next day he's out, he sees a couple of his Israelite brothers and they're arguing and fighting. He goes, guys, you know, can't we all just get along? And they're like not having it. They say, oh, who are you to tell us what to do? What are you gonna do? Kill us like you did that guy yesterday? So Moses is like, rut roll. (laughs) Because if they know, who else knows? You know, maybe, maybe Pharaoh knows and he's gonna hate me and he's gonna kill me and horrible things are gonna happen to me. So he runs away and he ends up in the land of Midian and there he meets a woman. He goes to work as a shepherd for her dad, Jethro. And there he's, he's a, he's a shepherd now. (laughs) So he used to be an Israelite baby and then he lived in Pharaoh's palace and now he is a shepherd. So anyway, years pass during that time the Israelites are just being manhandled, man. They're being treated horrible by Egypt and by Pharaoh, and they're praying, God, get us out of here, you know, deliver us from this mess, and God hears their prayers, and so one day, Moses is walking through the desert with his sheep. He sees this bush, and it's on fire, but it's not burning up, so he goes, well, something wrong. I'm gonna go see what that's all about, and God speaks to him from that bush, and he says, you know, you're standing on holy ground. Remember that story? So you're gonna go. I've heard my people's prayers, and you are gonna go back, and you are gonna, you're gonna lead my people out of Egypt. So Moses like starts making a bunch of excuses. I can't really do this. I don't, I, I don't have the skill set or whatever. He's whining. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. But anyway, God convinces him that he's going to do it. So he gives him his brother Aaron to help him and Moses and Aaron go and they talk to Pharaoh and they say, hey, you know what? Our God told us you need to let his people go. And Pharaoh's like, you're God. Who's that? I don't know. That's not happening. And so in fact, he got even meaner than he was before. Uh, to the Israelites. And so, you know, Moses is praying, what are we gonna do, God? I thought he was gonna let them go. And God says, oh, they're gonna let them go now because they're gonna see how strong I am. And they're gonna find out who I really am. And so he sends these plagues, and we've all heard of the plagues. There's 10 plagues. Um, Really interesting, in Egypt, they worshiped all kinds of different gods, and I think God is gonna assert to them that there's only one real God, and so all these plagues kinda correspond to one of their gods. So like, one of their gods is the Nile River. They thought the Nile River was a god, and so the first plague was he turned the Nile River to blood, just to say, okay, that's your god, well, this is who I am. Uh, One of their gods looked like a frog, and so he sent frogs just everywhere. Can you imagine you pour your coffee in the morning and a frog falls in, right? It's just frogs everywhere. And so all these things are happening. One was um, like gnats or lice. How many of you have lice? I'm <laughs> just kidding. How many of you have lice right now? Just a quick show. Uh, everybody's scooting apart. Uh, so um, that one, the, they had the, the god of the land, the dirt or whatever. And so that, and that plague, all the dust turns into gnats or license, it was miserable. They had boils, they had animals dying, they had hail, they had all these different plagues that came on. There were all these things were supposed to make Pharaoh say, oh my gosh, this, this God is really God. I need to give in and do what he tells me to do. But he keeps telling him he's going to, but he just doesn't do it. And so then finally, the main God that they worshiped in Egypt was Pharaoh. And so finally God says, okay, well, they're gonna let him go now because now I'm gonna show Pharaoh 
who God really is and I'm gonna affect him. And so he tells uh, Moses, you know, get ready because this, this thing is gonna happen and he's gonna let you go. In fact, he's gonna make you go when this is over. And so this is the Passover. And so here's what all of Israel is instructed to do. He says, you need to all get yourselves ready for the trip and you need to each family take a, a, a lamb or a goat that's unblemished, that's not sick or had broken bones or anything like that. Take a perfect lamb and then kill it and roast it and you're gonna have like a barbecue that night and I want you to take some of the blood of that lamb and smear it on that wood like beam, the doorpost above your doorway to your house. And then that night, I'm, I'm going through Egypt and the firstborn male in every single family is gonna die. Pharaoh, his court, all the way down to servants, all the way down to slaves, every firstborn male, even the animals, is gonna die that night. But look what God says but you need to put this blood on there, right? But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So God's gonna go through and death is coming with him, right? But when he sees the blood in a house, he passes over that house and that's why they call it Passover, right? And this meal, they had a lot of instructions about how to eat the meal, wear your clothes, have your walking stick. Um, don't even wait for the bread to rise. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be tortillas, man. We don't have time for the bread to rise because we're gonna be ready to roll as soon as this thing happens, right? So they have this great meal. They smear the blood across their doorpost. And that night, sure enough, just like he promised, God walks through. And as he does, the firstborn of every single family, even the animals, dies, including Pharaoh's. So the next morning, Pharaoh calls Moses in and he says, go, go, I, I give up. And they did. Time, 2308. In 600 years, we cover. So that's pretty fast. Okay, so um, there's just, and we're looking for practical applications, right? What, are the, what can we learn about our lives from that life? What can we learn about our stories from that story? And there's a lot of them in here about parenting and about patience and about faith and about calling and about life. But to me, if we really pull back from this story and we really got like the 30,000 foot view, right? If we really look down on this story from really, really above, I think this story of Israel and slavery and freedom um, has like one like main overarching lesson. And I think that lesson is just as important to us as it was to them. Here's the lesson. Oppression and slavery are real and ongoing, even for God's chosen people, because the world's messed up. It was messed up then, and it's messed up now. But even in dark places, even in the middle of oppression and slavery, there's something else that still applies now that applied then. There's something else that doesn't change. And that is that even in the worst possible situation, God sustains his people. And ultimately, God rescues his people. No matter how bad the situation is. They were in slavery for 400 years. They're being beaten, right? They're killing their babies. The worst possible situation, but even in the worst possible situation, God sustains his people. And ultimately, God rescues his people because that's who he is. And he doesn't change. Circumstances change. Cultures change. What we call slavery and oppression may change, but God doesn't change. 3,500 years ago in Egypt, God sustained his people. And ultimately, he rescued his people. And their lives were hard. 
hard, but they kept their faith and they stayed connected to each other and even in the worst possible circumstances, they, they stayed connected to God and they actually thrived and, and grew. They became a powerful nation while they were in slavery. God sustained his people and ultimately God rescued his people from slavery and oppression and bondage and he walked them out of there and into redemption and freedom and new life in the promised land and that applies directly to our lives as an encouragement to us. This really matters to us because this means that whatever your Egypt is, right, whatever's enslaving you, whatever's holding you back, whether it's bad health or bad relationships or bad habits or bad friends or bad circumstances, whatever is holding you back from the freedom and the life that God has for you, God will sustain you, just like he sustained them through the worst possible circumstances. Somehow they survived, somehow they thrived, somehow they grew, and somehow they held on to their faith. And they did it by the power of God, and so can you. God can give you unexplainable peace. God can give you unexplainable comfort, even in a really hard situation. You can, you can keep going and you can thrive and you can grow in whatever circumstances you find yourself in because God will sustain you. God sustains his people and ultimately, God will rescue you whatever your circumstances are right now. And it may not be in your time. That's the like, that's the, like small fine print, right? God will rescue you. Um, it may not be in your time. They waited 430 years. So it may not be in your time, but God will rescue you through, I don't know, a miraculous change of circumstances. He might rescue you that way. Uh, through empowering you to get through hard circumstances. He might rescue you that way. He ultimately bringing his kingdom come. He might rescue you that way. But he rescued them and he'll rescue you. And in a couple of weeks, we're gonna have a real talk about this, about how he sustains us, and how he rescues us, and how he even uses us as part of the process. So if you're struggling, which I think we all are, with any kind of slavery, or oppression, or bondage, like relationally, or medically, or financially, or some kind of addiction to sin, or a habit, if your circumstances seem impossible in your class or your family or your job or your country or your world, March 20th, you should come to church. We're gonna work through and pray through and worship through how God sustains us and how God rescues us from these impossible situations. But for right now, we just need to see this story does apply to our story. Because just like the children of Israel, whatever's enslaving you, whatever has you in bondage, whatever is hurting you or attacking you or keeping you from the life God has for you, whatever's opposing you or stealing your joy, God will sustain you. And ultimately, God will rescue you. Okay, where does Jesus fit into the story? And really, the better way to ask this question is, how does this story, this little story, fit into this big story that leads us to Jesus. And I think the most obvious thing is what I wanted to talk about from the beginning, and that is the Passover. Because the Passover is another example of foreshadowing in the Bible. 
So remember what foreshadowing is, right? It's an image, it's a shadow, it's a, it's, it's a, a picture, an illustration. It's something that points us to the real thing that's coming later, right? It's a shadow. And so Passover is a shadow or a foreshadowing or an image of future events in the big story. Um, do you see the foreshadowing in that? It's, it's a whole lot of stuff. It, it, it foreshadows the story of Jesus. It's, it also foreshadows our story. Um, because just like Israel in Egypt, we're in a world where we don't belong. Right? Just like Israel in Egypt, the place where we live is not really our home. And just like Israel in Egypt, the one that's in charge of this world hates us and wants to oppress, oppress us and wants to enslave us and kill us. And just like Israel and Egypt, God is sustaining us, even in the darkness, even in the slavery, even in the oppression of the sin in us, and even in the hate and violence and evil all around us. And just like Israel and Egypt, someday judgment is coming to this world, and the evil ruler of this world will be defeated, and God's people will finally be rescued, just like the Passover. And on that day, death will be all around us. And so, I'm pitching future sermons today. We're gonna talk about death and hell in a few weeks. Doesn't that sound like fun? Oh, it's gonna be awesome. Uh, spoiler alert, hell is bad. <laughs> hell is bad, it's so bad, in fact, that Jesus was willing to be tortured to death so that you didn't have to go there. Hell is real, and judgment is real, and judgment day is coming. And just like God judged Egypt so that his people could be free and go to the promised land. Someday God will judge and purge our world of evil to free us. And on that day, just like in Egypt, there will be wailing and screaming and death all around us. That night in Egypt, God's people were surrounded by death. Um, but just like with the ark we talked about a few weeks ago, God created a means of escape. Right? They're completely surrounded by death and judgment but God created a means of escape. And for these people, if their family, if their house was covered by the blood of the lamb, then they could escape the judgment and the death that was all around them. And judgment and death are coming to our world too. But God's people have a means of escape through the cross. When judgment comes, when death is all around us, we'll be safe because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Exodus 12, 13 is true for us, just like it was for them. God says, when I see the blood, then I'll pass over you. The Israelites weren't saved by being related to Abraham. They weren't saved by religion. They weren't saved by good deeds or pure thoughts. They were rescued from death. They were freed from slavery. They had new life because of the blood. And just like Israel, God's calling us from death to new life. He's calling us out of slavery. He's calling us out of oppression. He's calling us into a new freedom. He's calling us into a new peace. He's calling us into a life with him. And just like them, we can't earn it. And we can't deserve it. And we can't buy it. And we can't marry into it. We escape death. We qualify for life. Our freedom comes by being under the blood of Jesus. So when the Hebrews looked up at that wood beam in their house, it was smeared with the blood of the lamb. 
they saw salvation. And they saw new life. And they saw freedom. And they foreshadowed what would later happen in, in our story. Because when we look at the cross, smeared with the blood of Jesus, we see our salvation. We see our new life. And we see our freedom. How does Jesus fit into all this? The cross is our Passover. Jesus is our perfect Passover lamb. So Israel and Egypt and the Passover, 28 minutes, pretty cool story, right? But there's a really practical life lesson in that for us, and that is that whatever enslaves us, whatever circumstances come against us, whatever the enemy tries to oppress us with, no matter how unbearable or hard or scary our circumstances are, God sustains his people. And ultimately God rescues his people from the oppression and the hate of this world and also from the slavery and the deadly power of sin. And he does it through the blood of the lamb, through Jesus. And just like we say every week, it's all about Jesus, the whole story. It's all about Jesus. Our whole lives are all about Jesus. So I just wanna encourage you today, man, if you're going through something hard, if you're in an impossible circumstance right now, I just wanna encourage you with this idea, God sustains his people, and God will ultimately rescue his people, and he will do it through the blood of Jesus. If you don't know about that, if you're thinking, well, man, I don't know. I never smeared blood at my house, right? I don't know. Am I in? Am I out? If I was you, I would get that worked out, and I would get it worked out today. So I'm just going to tell you there's some people back in the prayer corner. They would love to talk you through that process of smearing that blood, man. We'll talk about what it looks like. If you want to talk to me, I would love to talk to you. After church today, I'll be out in the lobby. Just track me down. Go to the Connection Center and just say, hey, I want to talk to Larry about that blood deal or how I get under the blood. Man, I would love nothing more than to help you smear the blood of Jesus over your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for seeing us where we are, for sustaining us in impossible situations, just getting us through so that we're even thriving and growing in these impossible circumstances. God, thank you for sustaining us and thank you for the promise. We know that you will ultimately rescue us and it may not be in our time but we know that you ultimately will rescue us and I thank you God because we have an oppressor in Satan that's way worse than Pharaoh and we have slavery in our lives in sin that is way worse than the slavery that they dealt with and I thank you because you provided a means of escape from judgment for us we never have to be separated from you we never have to experience spiritual death because of the blood of Jesus. And I pray that if there's anybody here that needs to make that commitment today and find out what that looks like, I just pray that you'd give them the courage to ask the question and get to the bottom of it. Lord, for the rest of us, will you just show us how amazing your word is, how woven together it is, how complex and beautiful it is. And will you remind us, Lord, that it's all about Jesus. Every story and every verse and every sermon and every poem and every letter in here is all about Jesus, and God, will you help us to make that true of our lives, that everything we do and everything we say and everywhere we go and everyone we meet, every action, every thought, every word, every deed, everything about us will be about Jesus. In his name.